and we're constant and constantly in our face. And it was just creativity and optimism and persistence that we used to navigate around it. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey. And you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Greg Trianish, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, uh, it is going to be an interesting conversation. I've been looking forward to this one since we booked it a few weeks ago because your background, I want to say I'm I'm envious or more, uh, I, I respect the things that you've accomplished so far just from what I've read about you, what I've seen about you. It's, it's really cool and I love the mission that you have uh, with your company, your nonprofit. So it's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to get you on the show. And first place to start, I guess, would be giving people your backstory. I mean, there's, there's, you've done a lot, man. I don't even know how to even boil that down, but yeah, give us, give us the, uh, the synopsis kind of, how did you get to where you are with the venture scientists and, um, and being in Bozeman? Yeah, geez, I'm, I'm, uh, glad it comes across that way. It feels like I'm just getting started with a lot of things, but, um, <laughs> that's with everybody. <laughs> yeah. So I came to Bozeman about 12 years ago. Um, I was previously in South America. I had just finished walking the length of the Andes Mountains. And along the way, I really just felt this deep desire to study wildlife ecology. I was asking myself, you know, if I had an endless amounts of money or could do whatever I want, what would I do? And I, I realized that more than anything, I wanted to study lions and figure out some way to save lions uh, or really any other wildlife and met a came across a guy named scott creel who works at the university here and reached out to him and asked if i could come and study at the university here wildlife ecology and that worked out and uh pretty much right away while i started at the university uh, this was my second degree i already had a degree in, in uh, sociology from boulder and uh yeah, right away I started working, tracking links and wolverines and grizzly bears here with a nonprofit that was based in Bozeman and uh, worked in the summers on uh, Fort Peck Reservoir with a researcher from the university and studied owls in California and uh, just to realize that being able to mobilize a bunch of people who had outdoor skills to make a difference made a lot of sense. So you got in 2008 after that trek, uh, you got National Geographic named you the Adventurer of the Year. I think it was 2008, right? Yeah. Uh, tell me about what earned you that that 
title for that year? What, what was it? So uh, my friend and I, Dea, we walked uh, about, we don't know exactly how far, but somewhere around 7,800 miles uh, over the course of 22 months from the equator to the very southern tip of South America. So we were on roads or places that um, were being built into roads about 10, 15% of the time. And the rest of it was on trails, a little bit of railway, but mostly trails, mostly bushwhacking. Over 50% of the track was bushwhacking or just overland. Um, so it was a pretty big adventure. I gave a presentation about it in a parking lot at the outdoor retailer show when it was still in Salt Lake. And uh, it turns out Matt Gio was in the audience there, unbeknownst to me. And so we got a call a few weeks later and we're asked if we could go to DC. Uh, that's really cool. Can we, I'm curious about that trip. I mean, that's, that's all, that's a lot of miles, man. What, uh, what were some of the unexpected challenges that maybe you, you could have planned for, but you didn't? Yeah, um, I don't know that we could have planned any better than we did. I mean, it's so hard to plan. You're talking about two years, and it's like it's hard enough to plan for my life here in Bozeman for two years, but um, <laughs> when we're out on a walk like that, um, you know, I, when we started, first of all, we didn't really know that we would be the first to do it. We didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into very well. I think that was evidence from the first day when we. We uh, left Keto in this bus and seats are way too small for six foot tall gringos. And we get to this tiny town called Papagiacto, which is right on the equator. And we chose that because it was one of about five or six tracks throughout the whole length of the continent that were written about. Um, I think less than 5% of our route was, was really documented. And uh, it was the start of this trek of the Condor is what it's called. And we, you know, driver calls out Papagata and we unwedge ourselves from these seats and get off the bus and bus driver's pulling away in this cloud of dust from the road and we just kind of look at each other and go, what now? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, you know, figured out which way was south and walked onto a, well, first we actually realized that we had forgotten gas for cooking. So we ended up finding a woman with a 50 gallon drum of diesel behind her house and she let us dip our uh, MSR stove into the diesel so that we could at least have something. So <laughs> diesel doesn't work very well, you gotta prime it. So we had to like light a bush on fire to prime our diesel so we could light our stove. It was kind of a ridiculous thing. Um, but anyway, we finally pointed our compass south and, and wound up walking on the wrong trail for the first two or three miles. and. We're bushwhacking pretty much over our heads, broke out in hives. Um, that first day, they fell into a ditch, a little drainage ditch, and fractured her wrist. And uh -huh. the day of my backpack fell off. So it, it literally fell to the ground after about 100 yards of walking. And I had to speed stitch it back together. So I don't know. That was probably a good indication that we had no idea what we were about to get ourselves into, but kept going. And, it's just kind of like that the whole way where challenges arose and were constant and constantly in our face. And it was just creativity and optimism and persistence that we used to navigate around it. So you said it was uh, two years, roughly, right? It was 22 months, 667 days. Yeah. 
Wow, that's incredible. How, how did you guys, uh, so did you just get supplies as you went? Did you learn how to forage? Did you do any kind of hunting? How did you guys get sustenance along the way? Yeah, I mean, we, we relied on, so all across the Andes, there's these small towns. And so in, in Peru, for example, we had a one to one million scale wall map. The kind that hangs in a classroom where you you know you pull it down on the little roller that we had when we were kids, and uh, you know we would just kind of look at that and pick a town and start asking people how to get to this town. And there are all these overland routes throughout the the Andes, and sometimes it was just pointing to a pass in the range, and they would say Por allá, and we would go there. And other times there would be a nice trail or an old Incan road that would go there, and uh, we would go to these towns and. Sometimes uh, there was nothing, and other times there would be, uh, you know, usually a, a woman and an indigenous woman that would have a mud brick house that had a little store in it. And so we would go and either we would trade what we didn't want anymore and and get supplies that way, or we would buy noodles and rice and stuff like that. Um, you know. More often than not, they were pretty limited in supply and we didn't want to clean out the whole town or they wouldn't let us do that. And so they would get us enough to get to the next farmer's market, which was over the next pass, or tell us to go to this bigger town, you know, just a, a few hundred miles away or whatever it was. And we would just kind of pick our way down the continent that way. Um, we also just had incredible generosity. People welcomed us into their homes and they would feed us when we were spending the night there and we would sometimes have a loaf of bread left over or have some noodles and we would trade for that uh, and they would give us part of a sheep that they had just butchered and, and just really incredible people that, that took care of us a, a lot of the way. Uh, that's great. Uh, I'm curious, you know, maybe there's, there's people listening to this who thinking, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling a call to adventure. Maybe I'll, I'll do something big like this that uh you know i can really look back on later in life and say hey i I stepped out of my comfort zone i did something really cool what uh what kind of financial support would you say someone needs to do this at like a minimum level like do you have to save up like 20 grand 30 grand like what what do you think someone needs from a financial standpoint to, to be able to fund something like this so in 2004, I had the Appalachian Trail uh, from Georgia to Maine, and I did that with about $3,500. Nice. Um, I had been working at a uh, preschool. I was a preschool teacher back then and raft guide in the summers, um, ski instructor as well in the winters, and saved up, um, yeah, about that, $3,500 or $3,500. Uh, and uh, just set off and you live with what you need on your back. And then in the Andes, I spent 22 months. I did that on less than $10,000. Um, you do not need a lot of money to, to do this. Today, you know, that, that might cost 10 grand, but at the very, very most, it would cost that. I actually had about 7,000 saved up, put 3,000 on credit cards and, and made it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think when people start their thought process on maybe I'll do something like this, they always assume that it's going to be costly, but generally it's not. I mean, my wife, uh, my wife's a climber, so she uses the term dirt bagging all the time. And, yeah. you know, she, they dirt, she dirt bagged her way around Southeast Asia and up through 
Eastern Asia, all these areas at a really low amount of savings. And basically she just saved enough from one bank account so she could get a flight home and then went until the money was gone. And uh, she had a great time. I'm very envious of that. When Greg, when you came, when you finished this, this 22 month trip, what, what was it like kind of coming back to normal life or quote unquote normal life? Yeah. Tough for a while, for sure. Like I remember, I think it was about a year that I really struggled in group settings. You know, keep in mind that for 22 months, I had one friend and uh, we had, we did have my little brother came and visited us for a month and, and hiked with us. He had never even camped before. And so this was quite a change for him. <laughs> and then we had two different friends come down throughout the time down there too. So other than those short visits, though, it was day out of night. And, you know, we would speak in English to each other. And then everything else was in Spanish or Quechua or Mayra. And so the opportunities to actually go deep with somebody and, and really engage with somebody were pretty darn limited. And so reemergence, I think the, the biggest surprise for me was the social structure. It was just being in a group setting. It just, I felt weird. And, and I don't, I wish I had better words to describe it, but I just felt out of my comfort zone and weird and awkward for at least a year. And I'm sure my friends listening to this, if they are, would say that I'm still weird. But um, yeah, I think that was one of the hardest parts for sure. Um, like I said before, I, I was doing something I really decided that I wanted to do. So being out studying ecology, being able to do that in the field, and you know, in particular, this job tracking links to Wolverines, I would take my boss's truck with snowmobiles on the back. I could bring friends with me if I wanted. I would go and park at a trailhead and get on the snowmobile. I'd drive the snowmobile as far as I could, and then I'd get on my skis, and I would go sometimes for days uh, and track links and, and wolverines and look for their tracks. And when I found them, I'd follow their tracks and collect DNA. And that's pretty hard to beat. That was one of the best jobs I had ever. That does sound like a great job. When you look back, when you look back, and I, I just have a lot of curiosity about this 22 months of your life. Um, mm -hmm. Did you feel that it was a simpler life and therefore a more enjoyable life, or was it actually more complicated than you thought? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there are there are parts of it that are so beautiful and just so special. I don't know that I could say it was simpler or less simple. I mean, everything I owned was on my back. I did have a little box that. I would bounce. So we would like get to a town and say like, what's about 300 miles away? That's a bigger city. And we could use the bus companies to send a box and that box had to be claimed within a month or they would send it back. And so that kind of kept us motivated hmm. to get to that next town. But other than that box, everything else I own in the world was on my back. And that was simpler and, and really cool. And it's something that sticks with me today, like asking that question of, do I really need this? It's so easy to get consumed by all the things that we're consuming and uh, that, that I still struggle with. And at the same time, like after 15, 16, 17, 18 months, you just start to get burned out a little bit. It's a job, right? It's get up every morning, you're going to walk 20, 30 miles that day. And for most often it's 10, 12 hours a day. 
Sometimes you don't make it that far because you're bushwhacking through a hellish landscape and you make it four miles, but you're always thinking about the mileage ahead. You're always thinking about the impending winter. You're always thinking about, do I have enough food? You're always just kind of looking towards um, and trying to avoid challenges. And uh, yeah, I guess it's it, it definitely forces you to be present, definitely forces you to be there. It forces you to deal with what's immediately in front of you. And I love that about it. Um, you know, at the same time, being with just one person and lacking culture and lacking friendships and lacking real depth of engagement, I learned how important that stuff was to me and probably didn't realize it the, when I set off on the trip, how important it was. So I struggled with that too. Um, so I don't know, easier or harder isn't really, can't really answer it that way, but there were parts about it that were just the most beautiful time of my life and amazing. And, other parts of it that uh, were awful. <laughs> and, you know, we got typhoid fever and dysentery. I had roundworms, flatworms. I had pinworms. I had uh, giardia at least twice that was diagnosed. Um, and so those things really sucked. Typhoid fever is pretty awful. Yeah, I've never had it and I don't have any intention of getting it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I, I would imagine that these experiences, as hard as they are, also shape uh, or dictate a certain amount of gratitude for the conveniences that we have. I mean, life's not you know as as much as turmoil as we seem to be in. Life's really easy now, you know. Uh, and I feel like we almost have to search out things that are hard just to make us grateful for what we have. Um, you know, there's it. Yeah, I don't want to get into the politics or what's going on with, you know, the current state of things. I mean, today's recording is uh, the 29th of September in 2020. So tonight is actually the uh, the big presidential debate, which mm. see what happens then. But yeah, it's, it just seems like people are kind of finding things to be upset about because life is really easy. You know, it's not, it's not that challenging, really. We have as much food as we want. Uh, we have water's easy. Most people have shelter. It's yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, um, I mean, when you got back, I would imagine something like a shower, a hot shower or a, a soft bed must've meant the world to you. Yeah. It's funny. Like you learn to deal without those things. And so they actually did like, I was super appreciative of a faucet. It was so novel to me that I could just get water wherever I wanted it. Um, <laughs> That was really interesting. You know, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And like, I think for most of the people listening to this podcast, that's certainly true that that we have an abundance and, and we live in simplicity comparatively. And, and at the same time, there are so many people in this world that are truly struggling. I saw a lot of them in South America. I met people on my other travels since then. I've been, I've been on expeditions or led expeditions to Mongolia and Botswana and South Africa and Uganda and, and and places like that, man, that is just not the case in the world. And, and I think it's important that we think about that. And, and part of the appreciation I now have is very much tied to that. If, if even early on in my life, I went to South Africa when I was 16. My grandma sent me there and, and, and seeing people live in the longer 
uh, ghetto, which is what it was called, is was so eye-opening to me and really embedded in me and, and ingrained in me this desire for a life of service and, and realizing how fortunate I am and desiring to give back. So let's let's focus on on now, or at least the last 10 years of your life. <clears throat> what what was the impetus for adventure scientists? Like how, how did this whole thing get started? Yeah, I uh, I had been doing these adventures and I, as we talked about Nat Geo gave me that award and, and it opened up this world of opportunity to me where I kind of felt like I had this un actual it wasn't a real ticket but i had basically a ticket to go anywhere in the world and, and do anything i wanted but that moment of service that feeling of sort of desire for service which started on that trip to south africa and and continued as i had the appalachian trail and walked through the south and and um just felt this deep desire to give back and, and make a difference with my time. I struggled as a teenager. I was really, uh, uh, I was kicked out of high school when I was 16. I was labeled an at-risk youth. And um, I originally thought that I would go and, and work to help kids that were struggling like I was. And so I worked in wilderness therapy for a while. Um, but the more that I saw the environmental challenges, the more I saw villages that were relocated because their glaciers had dried up the more that i saw environmental degradation the more i was i was inspired to work for the benefit of animals and, and places that couldn't speak for themselves and so once i got a degree and started working as a wildlife biologist i uh i just realized that the impact I was having, and I started taking these biological expeditions too. So I was, I led a trip to Mongolia uh, where I, I uh, was put in, brought together a team and we went and tracked wolverines across the very northern part of Mongolia and spent 27 days skiing across the Darhad region. And uh, I did an expedition from the eastern side of Yellowstone to the western side of the Frank Church. Uh, which is in central Idaho, and uh, documented uh, how grizzly bears or wolverines might move across that ecosystem along with the Craighead Institute and Greater Yellowstone Coalition here in Bozeman. And, uh, you know, I, I loved those expeditions, but it was one expedition doing one thing. And I just realized that if we could mobilize thousands, if we could get people moving in the same direction, that the impact would be awesome. We could really open up some opportunities for scientists who needed the data to make the world better, to make our species more sustainable. I love it. So what does adventure scientists do? Kind of explain the, the core business model or the core model of the nonprofit. Yeah, so uh, adventure scientists is, uh, we're based in Bozeman. There's 16 full-time staff here. We've got a board and uh, about eight on the, well, there are eight on the board and awesome advisory council and just an incredible group of people around the organization that help us find scientists who are at the cutting edge, whether it's in technology or climate change or oceans or biodiversity. We are looking for and, and actively seek out these scientists who are impact oriented, looking to use data and science to make our species more sustainable. And what we do is design projects with them. This is a huge, huge component of it because 
so often this notion that you can go all over the globe at once hasn't really existed before. Uh, and so a huge part of our work is to get scientists to think bigger about the problems they're working to solve. And then we design these projects, we build the infrastructure, the, the, the trains, the apps, the, the online portals where volunteers can then engage. And so we then reach out to the volunteer outdoor community and people who love the outdoors like I do and just have felt that desire to give back to the places they love to play at some point in their lives. And so we've, we've been able to mobilize tens of thousands of people to go out and, and train them how to collect data. And then all those data go back to the scientists with whom we're partnered and uh, are used to, to further some new technology or further some new policy or, or some way that impact is, is directly felt and, and there's change in the world. So maybe if you can, Greg, walk, walk me through like a, a recent project, just so I can, we can get clear on like how the process works, who gets involved and give us, give us an example. Yeah, totally. So um, we currently have a project that's active. Uh, we call it our timber tracking project. And with this, we've got um, the shards. We're now on our fourth species. So what we're doing is combating this $150 billion a year economic issue. So this is really massive. And I, I wasn't aware of how big of an issue this is. But the reality is on the international market, up to half of every wood product you buy is illegally harvested. So when you take that Whoa. at scale. That Whoa. Whoa, can we step back on that again? So yeah. say that one more time. In the international market, up to half of every product that's bought and sold is, is illegally sourced. That means that whoever harvested the tree that this wood came from didn't have a permit to go and harvest it. That so, means that managers who are responsible for managing these forests don't have the ability to manage them. And it means that the 1.6 billion people around the globe who rely on forests for their livelihood aren't able to have a sustainable livelihood because these forests are being poached. Ooh, okay. So like I'm building a home right mm -hmm. now. Well, not me, if it's, but someone is for me. Uh, yeah. That half of that, that timber, that lumber is, is potentially sourced from somewhere illegally. Is that, is that? Well, right? it depends where you are in the United okay. States. The number is lower than that. Um, okay. and we do have some certification mechanisms here, things like the Ford Stewardship Council, FSC. Um, and there's also an industry specific one, but FSC is far better. But even FSC themselves will tell you that there are data gaps. There are challenges in being able to track these forests and, and, you know, even using things um, like uh, uh, um, latest and greatest ability to track and trace things, you know, it, it's still uh, extremely difficult to say that the wood that's getting to you has come from some legal source. And so there's corruption, there's bribery, there's extortion. This is this is a criminal enterprise where it's up to $150 billion a year. And, it, and that number is global. In the US, the number is probably closer to four to six billion dollars a year. It's still pretty massive. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So how oh, so how are you guys engaged with with this problem? What do you what do you, what's the project look like? 
Yeah, so take the range of any given species. And, and so we've done big leaf maple, which is really sought after for guitars. You know, it was Carlos Santana played a big leaf maple guitar at the Grammy Awards, I think it was in 2000. And since then, uh, you know, $40,000 for one guitar that has the right flaming, uh, the right pattern in the wood. And so take the range of big leaf maple or the other species we've worked on and you can, what we do is we send volunteers across that entire range. They navigate and learn to identify what trees uh, they're seeking, in this case, big leaf maple or, or western red cedar or Alaskan yellow cedar. And they learn how to take samples from them. So they're taking leaves, they're taking cones, and then we're taking tree cores. So we drill about a straw size hole into the tree, doesn't harm the tree, and will seal right up after we're done. In some cases, if you're not quick enough, it actually starts to seal before you get your, uh, your increment bore out of the tree. Uh, <laughs> but then we take that tree core, and so it goes through the center, and you can really look at and learn a lot of information just from the rings themselves. But what happens is it goes to two different labs, and one of the labs is uh, at the Fish and Wildlife Service is using a chemical isotopic analysis to look at uh, really a rough scale region of where that particular tree's genetics, or I'm sorry, chemicals are, are from. And then we're also doing this with genetics through the U.S. Fish and Water, I'm sorry, the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, and they are looking at the genetics and it's a much finer scale. And so different for each species on how fine of a scale you can get. But the idea is that you can then say the genetics that show up in this piece of wood that now is showing up in port or now is being confiscated from a, a suspected poacher matches the genetics from this 100 kilometer radius in the southern end of the range. And so we know that, that southern end of the range is illegal to harvest from, and therefore this is an illegally harvested shipment or a piece of timber. So I guess we can use me as an example, right? Very amateur adventurer. Um, how would you mobilize someone like me to help with a cause like this? Yeah, so you'll hear about us on the Black Diamond podcast or on <laughs> Facebook or whatever. And, and you go to our website, adventurescientist.org. Uh, that particular project is slash timber, not HTML. And you apply to be part of these projects. We do have limited spots on each one because it's all about how much data we need. It's not about the, the number of volunteers. It's about getting the right amount of data so that we can uh, in part change in the world. And so you'll apply to be part of the project. Our team is going to screen you to make sure you've got the adequate outdoor experience. You don't have to be uh, an Everest climber. You don't have to be the, the world's greatest explorer. You just need to be able to take care of yourself and follow a protocol. So to us, you need to be able to be demonstrate that you're comfortable in the outdoors. And then once you can do that, uh, you'll go through a training. Um, the training is online, takes a couple hours of your time. You'll interact with our staff throughout that process. You're going to get shipped a bunch of gear um, that you will have gone through the training. So now you know how to use. And then uh, you're registering to collect data in a specific location or region. And you'll go out and essentially own that region. And then generally, Think for that project, it's it's 10 sites that you need to agree to do over the course of a year. 
And so you'll go out and our staff will be checking in with you to make sure you got everything you need and see how it went. And then uh, once your data get turned in, they'll get analyzed and then we'll report back to you on what we found, how it compared to the other trees in the area, you know, how your data fit into the broader picture, how it was used. Um, and along the way, there's webinars with the end users of the data, the forest service biologists or the Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement uh, officers. Um, you know, we're also partnered with groups like the World Resources Institute uh, on that Big Leaf Maple project and we've partnered and are partnering with other NGOs. So they'll be part of that as well. And, and you know, what we find is that our volunteers just become so involved in these issues and they're really dedicating their labor, their time to these issues. And so, they feel a sense of ownership over it. And we've seen our volunteers go on to start organizations, whether it's for the, we also collected the largest data set on earth for microplastics. We've had uh, in art collecting a, a nationwide water quality monitoring effort on wild and scenic rivers with kayakers and rafters where uh, we've collected the highest known plant life on earth from Mount Everest, which is now uh, yielded a fungi that is inoculating three and a half million acres around the world and increasing crop yields without the need for synthetic fertilizers. So there's these issues that people really just get in, involved with and inspired by, and they go on to start new organizations and continue volunteering and taking all kinds of different actions to continue engaging with these issues. Yeah, it's cool. So do most do most of the volunteers, are they doing it within their specific region that they live in? Are they traveling a lot or is it just different by project? Yeah, it's really different by project. You know, as we work, um, we've worked on international projects where, you know, like the microplastic project, for example, we sampled over 3,200 locations around the globe and that was mostly sailors and ocean rowers, people who were literally rowing across oceans partnered with the, the Great Pacific Ocean Race, um, which was a, a rowing competition. Um, yeah, it really depends. Um, we're working on a project now in Eastern Europe and uh, expect to engage the locals there. Um, likewise, as we learn more about um, indigenous rights and their desire to protect their own forests, and, and what data they need to protect their forest. That's a huge part of our work now is figuring out where we can partner with indigenous groups and help them build projects and, and find um, the data collectors, be it through their uh, own groups or through their own villages or help them by finding people who wanna to go to more remote places than they desire to go. So it's often partnerships like that, and it really is different for each and every project. So Greg, there's a, there's a, a million great causes out there, right? How, yeah. how do you how do you select the ones that you 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 get involved with? Everything's really vetted by three criteria. The first is that there has to be an environmental or human health issue, which is truly data limited. So, you know, you can take climate change as a great example of what we mean by this. And climate change isn't really data limited anymore. We know that the climate is changing and, you know, politics aside, that's what's really limiting that issue from advancing is, is a political issue. It's a 
it's a social issue. It's got nothing to do with data limitations anymore. So we don't work on climate change broadly. That being said, we very much work on climate change adaptation or the ability of a particular species to survive amidst climate change, the ability for people to source water amidst climate change, the ability for people to grow their food and feed 12 billion people, which are expected to be on the planet and not too long from now, and, uh, and know that the climate is changing. Therefore, there's going to be more desertification. There's going to be bigger storms which wipe out crops. We need to be resilient against those things. And so that those are data-limited issues. The second criteria is that there needs to be a direct pathway from data collection to impact. So it's not enough to go out and, and say, for us anyway, that, hey, we learned how this or that species is adapting to climate change or might adapt to climate change. We want to know that there's something a manager can do about it. We want to know that there's some policy decision that can be made. We want to know that there's a technology that can be utilized similar to the timber project. And, and you know, we're creating these genetic reference libraries. But the idea here is that cutting edge DNA sequencing and, and even things like handheld DNA sequencers, which are being created for the first time, will be usable by port officials, by buyers and suppliers from major corporations, even one day by consumers who are walking through a furniture store or more likely a, a, a store where they source lumber and they can look at a raw piece of wood and there's either a barcode on it, which will tell you exactly where it came from using blockchain, or there's uh, an actual ability to, to sequence the DNA and trace it back to the forest where our genetic reference library showed that it came from. So that's an example of how technology is doing that. And, and that's oh, in many cases actually possible today. Uh, it's really incredible. And so we want to know that there's this tangible pathway to an outcome. And then the third criteria is that there has to be a need for the outdoor community. You know, there are so many citizen science groups and groups that are out there mobilizing volunteers and doing a great job. The niche we really occupy is, is where data can be collected by highly skilled outdoor professionals, not always professionals, but outdoor enthusiasts, uh, people who, again, can be comfortable in the outdoors, and we can mobilize them to, to collect some really meaningful data. Man, I'm I'm a huge fan of this. It's uh, you know, my wife and I spend so much time in the outdoors and um we're always looking for meaningful ways to engage with it, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. just sitting in the outdoors is fantastic, but then engaging with it in a meaningful way, um, besides just purely recreation is is something that a lot of, I think a lot of people crave, whether they know it or not. Uh, especially if you spend a lot of time in the outdoors, you want to feel like you're, you're part of it. And that's why, you know, obviously things like, uh, you know, fishing and hunting are, are so, so popular too in areas like we live in. Mm -hmm. So now the world is changing ever so fast, Craig, and I'm talking purely about 2020 <laughs> um, and everything that goes on that's gone on so far. And we still got a quarter to go. Um, What's been some of the challenges that you guys have been facing, or maybe some positive things that have come out of you know the pandemic and um, all the the variation of things that have happened this year? Yeah, I mean the most positive thing is I get to spend more time home with my family. I have two small kids, and nice. you know that's great. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has definitely upset our ability to get volunteers into um, as many areas as we'd like. We're really cognizant of the fact that if people are traveling from cities to small towns, they could be bringing the virus with them. We're really cognizant of the fact that um, you know the tourism and the fact that a lot of our volunteers are on adventure travel trips aren't going on those trips anymore. That that's been a reality. Um, and so we had to adapt and think about how we source volunteers differently and how we um, just encourage or discourage volunteers from traveling out outside of their state lines, certainly, um, but in many cases, even their county lines. So that's been a challenge. And then you add the layer of fires on top of it that we've had across the West this year. And, and you know, fires are only getting worse, but this is now the third year in a row that our projects in California and Oregon and Washington have really been disrupted by the smoke and, and the fires themselves. Um, so that's been an added layer of challenge on top of it. Um, but, you know, our volunteers are amazing. They're resilient. They, they are um, coming up with plans and, and ways that they can navigate this pandemic and, and still get out and still explore the outdoors. You know, certainly I'm still on my mountain bike as many days a week as I can be. I actually have a great seat that goes in the front and I can ride with my three-year-old and we go up and, and just ride all the trails around Bozeman. It's amazing. Awesome. Um, so we're still getting out and still collecting data while we're out there. And, and um, you know, it's definitely still possible, albeit not everywhere you go. Uh, not, not if you're gonna be traveling long distances to go and get to those places. Um, our donor network and our, our uh, group of advisors and supporters has been amazing. Um, they've really stepped up through the pandemic. They believe in our work and believe in science and believe that science is what's going to carry us through this pandemic and, and so many other challenges we're facing. I think while the immediate is, is obviously right here in front of us, we need to keep our eyes on the fact that this virus was largely caused by uh, a lack of respect for nature and degradation of nature, transferring of a zoonotic disease uh, to humans has happened before. It will happen again. We need to really learn how to uh, live um, much more in balance with, with the planet and with the environment. And climate change is a huge example of that. And, and there are others, plastics and waterways. And, and now what we've learned is that it's ubiquitous and even in air and dust falling out of the sky because there's so much of this. Um, we've just got to do better. We've got to come up with better solutions and invest in science and invest in technology and invest in the amazing people that are at the forefront of these fields and working to, to find better ways for us to do what we need to do to survive. So this is a very loaded question, Greg. I mean, given that you have two young kids and, um, you know, what we're, we're also, I mean, you probably have a much better grasp on what's really going on because all what most of us are fed is, you know, what's in our newsfeed. And, um, but it's, it's, it seems glim, right? Like, you know, what everything that we see from, you know, especially in a global warming standpoint, do you, are, are you optimistic that 50 years from now we're going to have innovated our way out of this? Uh, do you think we're we're as a you know as a species just kind of 
doomed to screw ourselves? What, what, what is, where do you stand on that, that paradigm? Yeah. So, you know, I go back to my Andes trek and I think about how many times we were out of food, we were out of water, trail roads behind us. There isn't a trail where we expect there to be one. Um, branch whips back and, and hits Dave in the eye and rips the lens of her eye so that she can't see out of that eye. You know, so many times on that trip, I thought we were done for. So many times on that trip, I thought that we weren't going to make it. And the choice was to lay down and die or to get up, use creativity and optimism and persistence and keep going. And that's the choice we have today. That's the choice we have as a society. We can give up. We can continue using fossil fuels. We can continue destroying the planet as quickly as we have been, or we can use creativity, remain optimistic, and be persistent to find solutions that are going to make our species more sustainable. And so, you know, I, I think that choice is clear. And I think that we have uh, a lot of momentum towards the more sustainable way of life. I think the rest of the planet has signed on to things like the Paris Accord, which didn't go far enough, but is a huge step in the right direction. I think there's the Congress on Biodiversity that uh, is coming up with ways to save and protect 30% of the planet by 2030. Um, I think that there are incredible initiatives underway uh, in the right direction. And I think it takes a generation knowing the challenges we face to find those innovators in that in that crowd. It's the 15 and 16 year old kids today, or even the 10 year old kids today. It's hopefully my kids that are one in three that are going to be growing up facing these problems and use creativity and optimism and persistence to find new solutions. And, uh, you know, we just don't have a choice. Right on. Awesome. Greg, uh, I want to respect your time. So tell us where, where do people get a hold of you? How do people get involved? Yeah. Give us the goods, man. Where, where do you want people to go? Yeah. Adventurescientist.org. Um, you can come and visit our website and learn all about our work. Uh, people are always welcome to reach out. You can, you can get a hold of us through the website or just email adventurescientist.org. Um, and can put anything in front of the at symbol there and you'll get a hold of us. Yeah, that, that's the best way. And we need volunteers and we need business-minded individuals and professionals that can help us grow this organization. You know, we didn't get into the business model a ton, but we do have a fee-for-service business model that we're growing and learning how to market better and learning how to improve all the time. So we need help with that. And, and we need uh, really help on all sides. So anybody who's been part of a nonprofit before has an interest in getting involved with one as a volunteer, as a donor, as a scientist, and as a potential partner of ours, if you need data, uh, we'd love to talk with you. Right on. Well, Greg, thank you for spending an hour with me today. And our audience been a really insightful, great story. You're doing really meaningful work, obviously, that uh, I can tell you're very passionate about. And that's, you know, very uh, authentic. So yeah, man, thanks for coming on. Keep up the great work and I uh, look forward to maybe catching up with you in a year from now and getting you back on the show as well. Sounds good. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Eric. Great to meet you. And yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Trinich. 
Hey everybody, this is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.